right, we're going to get your Bibles uh, open. Uh, Acts 15 is where we're going to be, continuing in our sermon series on the book of Acts. And uh, talking about a total church, the whole of church for the whole church. Uh, specifically in this portion of Acts, talking about the church advancing. And the title of the message, I'll give this to you here right up front, is The Simplicity of Salvation. The Simplicity of Salvation. And let's start with this thought. Salvation, the gospel, it's simple. It's incredibly simple. It's remarkably simple. And we say that, I think most of us would agree with that. And yet inside, many of us, right, there's, there's this tendency we go, well, the gospel's simple. Yes, the gospel's simple, but, and it's like we want to qualify it. We want to add something to it. We want to make it something more. Because I think deep down inside of us, right, when, when we think of something that's simple, we tend to think of things that are simple and they're inferior, they're substandard, they're less important, they're lower level. So I, I, I like to joke, Eric Anderson, the elder who uh, prayed for us here a few moments ago, Eric Anderson is a rocket scientist. And so we, we like to joke about um, uh, the complexities of rocket science. And so, so I'll be like, man, that it's so difficult. It's so crazy. There's so much that goes into that. And, and Eric will say, well, Mike, it's really not that difficult. And then I just kind of smile and go, yeah, because you're a rocket scientist. That's the point. It's not difficult for you. It's difficult for me. And we look at things that are complex and we, we tend to assign some kind of value to it. And we look at things that are simple and, and we, we almost treat that as if it's a value statement. Now listen, listen, listen. The gospel is simple. The good news that Jesus Christ took your place, took my place when he died for you and for me. It's simple. It really is simple. The grace of God can be known by anyone. That's why Jesus was so fond of children being able to come and approach them. He understood that in some respects they get it far better than we do as adults. And the simplicity of that. So while the gospel is simple... Uh, make no mistake, uh, get this, God's salvation is simple in content, and yet it's profound in implication. Okay, the gospel is simple in content, but it's profound, remarkably profound in implication. And so as we work through this text uh, here this morning, I want us to appreciate the simplicity of the gospel. I want us to appreciate the simplicity of God's grace that's been extended to you and I, but, but I don't want us to become inoculated to it. I think sometimes we're so familiar with it that we've become inoculated to the power and the poignancy of it. And so maybe part of that is where we would revel in the profound nature and manner by which Jesus has saved us. So the simplicity of salvation, four things we'll see here in the text this morning. Let's start with this thought, verses 1 through 5. Let me give you the thought and then we'll read verses 1 through 5. An emphasis of grace alone. I talk about the simplicity of salvation. There's an emphasis of grace alone. Now notice what Luke tells us starting in Acts 15 verse 1. It says this, But some men came down from Judea. They're in the church in Antioch, up in Syria. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So here's what they're teaching them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
uh, red flag, sound the alarm, siren, whatever. That is a problem. That's a problem for a, on a number of levels if you're a guy. All right. Uh, but verse 2, check this out. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they, they, they have this dissension, this debate, they head out, and as they're moving down to the church in Jerusalem, they're stopping off at other churches going, check out what God did. Isn't this amazing what God did? We, we couldn't believe that God did this. And great joy coming to all the brothers, really recounting what we looked at last week in Acts 13 and 14. Uh, Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. See, the issue wasn't just in Antioch. Notice this, verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. I want you to notice, believers. Okay, Luke's telling us these are believers. They belong to the party of Pharisees, and here's what they're saying. It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so we have this... One of the first debates, if you will, in the church, this theological issue, something that had the, the, the possibility or the potential to be incredibly divisive in the church. And some of these brothers or some, some guys are coming to this church and they're saying, listen, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be truly saved, you have to be circumcised. Now, you might be like, that is such a weird thing. Why are we talking about circumcision in church? Well, you have to understand the historical context into which circumcision fit. For the Jewish people, that was a a substantial part of their identity and what made them distinct and significant uh, in in, in the Lord. And and remember all the way back with Abraham or God, that was part of the covenant promise and part of the sign and the seal that came with it. So this isn't some random um, peripheral issue that some whack jobs are like, hey, let's let's make sure that we include this because we're some sordid sadists that love pain. Okay, that's not what they're after. It was very much a substantial part of their history and their customs, though no doubt some confusion around how it played into salvation. So notice this, right, in verses 1 through 5, an emphasis of grace alone. Here's the first thing. The first thing that we see is that an emphasis of grace alone will help us to identify false gospels. When, we, when, when, we're, when we're fixated on grace alone, when we recognize that it's what God has done for you and I and nothing else that saves us, it helps us to clue in to false gospels that exist. And so in verse 1, these guys come down and they're teaching, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we've talked about how, how that was so substantial, such a, a significant part of their history. right? But the immutable truth is that God's grace drives everything in salvation. It's the start point and the end point. It's the whole of it. And so these guys are preaching this, right? See, there's, 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 well, there's a number of problems with what they're saying, but the largest problem is this, is the implication that I can do something to earn or merit God's favor and his salvation. See, that's the problem. That you could do something, that I could do something, that we could work in a particular manner, that some form of works could bring about salvation. See, because that's what these guys are saying. You cannot be saved unless you do this. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. 
You, you recognize you, you, you're the world's worst savior, and so am I. Like the, the world is full of seven billion horrendous, horrible saviors. And 2,000 years ago, there was one who was a phenomenal savior. See, the beauty is it only takes one. But see, we, we, we can't save ourselves. The scriptures are unmistakably clear about this truth. Right? Titus 3 tells us it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, right, before I'd done anything good, Christ died for us. Jesus told us in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You, you don't get there. You don't earn it. You don't achieve it. You don't merit it without God's grace intervening on our behalf. That's, that's the point. And so this emphasis on grace alone helps us to begin to identify false gospels. We have to be cautious. We have to be careful that we don't do this, that we're aware of it happening. Right? And with respect to salvation, anything beyond the work of Jesus, listen, loved ones, it's not of God. It's not of God. And sometimes we do that. We start to think and we live in a manner, well, if I'm good enough or if I try harder, if I do more, God will love me better. He won't love you better. He can't love you better than he already loves you. That's the point. It's the sufficiency of Jesus' death in your place and in my place. An emphasis on grace alone identifies false gospels. Notice then this secondly, look at verse 2. Uh, we see that an emphasis on grace alone helps us to fight for the true gospel. It helps us to fight for the true gospel. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, which means they had what? A large, a serious, a big dissension and debate with them. See right, they're fighting for the true gospel. Two words that Luke uses here. Let's a dissension and debate. Let me start with debate. Debate is really what we would think it is. It's an inquiry or a questioning. They're going back and forth. Why would you say this? Why would you suggest this? What in the scriptures would, you, would lead you uh, to, to saying this? But then this word dissension, this is a really interesting word. Uh, one of the English words uh, that's used in other parts of the scripture for this same Greek word, check this out, it's insurrection. It's like an actual revolt or rebellion against what's happening here. In fact, do you remember, remember Barabbas? You guys remember who Barabbas was, right? Like right before they crucified Jesus, they bring Jesus out and they bring Barabbas and he was an insurrectionist. That's what the, the gospels tell us. I mean, he had literally led a revolt. He had been responsible for murder. They bring these two guys out. I'm like, which one do you want? Of course, they all choose Barabbas. Right? That, that, that word that was used to describe him is the same word that's used to describe what's happening here in the church in Antioch around this, this issue of the gospel. They are fighting, literally revolting for the true gospel. See, the point being that they were unwilling, they were simply unwilling to allow a false gospel to be preached or taught. We just won't allow it. We won't stand for it. The one true gospel and that alone, nothing else. Paul, interestingly enough, wrote about this same concept in Philippians 1. Remember in Philippians 1, he says, um, some preach Christ out of rivalry or envy and others out of goodwill. And he's talking about that. And he's like, he's, literally some guys were preaching the gospel in an attempt to just stick it to Paul. They didn't like Paul. They said, hey, we're going to stick it to you. And Paul goes on later in Philippians 1 and he says, listen, whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is proclaimed, in that we rejoice. 
And see, what, what Paul was saying is, I don't even care about their motives. Now, I think it's important. Our motives are important. Don't hear that you can do all, you can do something for all the wrong reasons and it's always good. No, our motives are important too. But when it comes to the gospel, what Paul was saying is, I don't even care if your motives are wrong so long as the content is right. But I will not stand for the content being wrong. In the same way that Paul was saying that in Philippians 1, it's the same thing that's happening here in the Jerusalem Council. He's like, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going to stand for this. And loved ones, the same should be true for us. In our homes, in our discipleship groups, with your family, with your spouse, with your children, God help us in this church where we would not stand, where we would not tolerate a false gospel. No adding to the work of Christ. Recognizing that Jesus, in his death, he died to save sinners, and his death is sufficient. Okay, hear me when I say this. God needs nothing from you to save you. Are you tracking? You tracking with me there? God needs nothing from you, and he needs nothing from me to save us. Now, we'll get to the response part later here in the text, but let's understand the gospel starts and ends with the sufficiency of the death of Jesus in our place. So an emphasis on grace alone identifies false gospels, fights for the true gospel. And then notice this, look at second half of verse 2 and 3. So they have this dissension, they have this debate. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Like, I tell you what, let's, let's get down to Jerusalem. Let's ask the apostles and the elders what they think about this. Verse 3, <clears throat> so being sent out on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers, right? And then verse 4, they go uh, to the church in Jerusalem. Verse 5, we see this debate uh, continue. Uh, but notice this, part of an emphasis on grace alone is it seeks counsel around the truth. Right, it seeks counsel around the truth. Right? They, they debated this. There, there was dissension around this back and forth. They went around these different things. And then they said, you know what? Let's go get counsel on this. Let's let someone else speak into this. Let's get wisdom on this. Now, now I want you to keep in mind some of, some of the players that are involved here. Right? This isn't like the junior varsity of spirituality. Okay, Barnabas repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly has talked about what a great guy that he is. And of course, we know Paul had a few things to say. I mean, the guy wrote a substantial portion of the New Testament. Like These aren't rookies who don't know what they're talking about. And yet I think there's great wisdom for us in this. And that even those two, how easily they could have appealed to, no, no, you don't understand who we are. We're a big deal in the church. So if we say this is the way that it is, then this is the way that it is, except that's not what they said. They said, you know what, we're going to go. And we'll go down and we'll seek counsel on this. And the scriptures tell us at length the great value that it is for us to seek counsel from one another's. Uh, probably uh, no, no book more than Proverbs speaking into the reality of uh, the, the great wisdom that there is around having a multitude of counselors and guidance. In fact, here's just a few places. Uh, this is far from exhaustive, but a few places in the book of Proverbs where we see this principle play out. Uh, Proverbs eleven fourteen says this, uh, where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Well, Proverbs fifteen twenty two. without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. 
Proverbs 24, 6, by wise guidance you can wage war, and an abundance of counselors, there is victory. Are you catching a theme here? Are you catching an idea? Like, good things happen when we seek counsel. We were never meant to go it alone. We were never meant to be lone rangers. You were never meant to, to, to be isolated or on an island. We were always, always, always meant to live in community, to, to live with one another, to have people speaking into our lives. That's why it's such an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly den- dangerous place to be when we think we can live that way. I don't need other people speaking into my life. I, I, don't, I don't need input. I can do it all on my own. Mike, I don't need the church. I don't need discipleship. I can, I, I can figure it out all on my own. See, that in and of itself is evidence that you can't because you've ignored the repeated warnings of Scripture that we're to live in community and that we need one another. That's the point. We've got to have people speaking into our lives. We've got to have people calling us on things, encouraging us in things. And this idea that I can go it alone... It's an absolute recipe for disaster. That's what it is. Now, John Wooden, John Wooden was um, a famous college basketball coach. I would suggest to you that John Wooden is arguably the greatest coach of any sport ever. Uh, And John Wooden was a faithful, faithful man of God uh, now in the presence of Jesus. But John Wooden had a lot of great things to say about a lot of things, honestly. Uh, But one of my favorite quotes from Wooden was this. Uh, He says, uh, those... Uh, those who are failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Now that same principle, loved ones, that same principle is the exact same thing about this idea of I don't need to be in community. <laughs> you're preparing to fail. Like you're setting yourself up for it. Because no doubt when it happens, and see, here's the real problem. Who's going to speak into your life? Who's going to walk alongside you? who's going to come alongside and care for you. That's why discipleship groups, that's why what's happening right here, the corporate gathering of the saints, that's why getting into the word uh, throughout the week, that's why those things are so important. We got people outside of ourselves speaking into our lives and an emphasis of grace alone, seeking counsel around the truth. I was talking with someone a little while ago and they were talking about, I'm going to trust my heart, I'll trust my heart. And I laughed. I said, have you ever read Jeremiah 17? You know what it tells you about your heart? It tells you that it's deceitful and wicked and that no one can trust it. I wouldn't trust it. No one should trust their heart. All right? And seeking counsel around the truth. An emphasis of grace alone. Notice this secondly. Secondly, really the heart of uh, the passage here. Uh, The simplicity of salvation embraces the essentials of salvation. The simplicity of salvation, it embraces just the essentials of salvation. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, can you see that back and forth? And some of the guys saying, hey, well, we really think this is important. Other guys like, no, that's, that's not what is the case. And back and forth and back and forth. <clears throat> Peter stood up and said to them, and so Peter back in Jerusalem, last time we saw him in chapter 12, he had hightailed it out of there after being released from prison. This is the last time we actually see Peter in the book of Acts. But he stands up, and honestly, you could underline, starting in the middle of verse 7 all the way through verse 11, because the whole thing is phenomenal. But here's what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
Right, the very thing that Paul tells us in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing, that as people hear the gospel, they believe. It's why it's so important for us to proclaim or to make known. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them. He's speaking to the, of, of the Gentiles. How did God bear witness to the Gentiles? Well, here's how. By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test Anytime you hear that phrase, putting God to the test, your ears should perk up and it should be in in a not good way if it's being um, leveled at you, if that's being said of you. Why are you putting God to the test? And here's how they're putting God to the test, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Like, Why would you call them to something that you yourself can't even do? Like, Why would you do that? And then verse 11, it's like a confession of faith here in verse 11 but we believe love this but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will it embraces the essentials of salvation here with Peter's speech a couple of things that I want us to highlight here's the first that it embraces God's work in salvation it embraces God's work in salvation. We're certainly talking about that, the emphasis of grace alone. Let me highlight three things. There's more than three, but I just want to highlight three here briefly. Uh, first of all, um, God giving them the Spirit. God gave the Gentiles the same Spirit uh, that He gave to the Jews. And in fact, as Peter says, that was the, the particular manifestation, that was the tangible evidence that God had bore witness to them that the same Spirit that came and lived inside the Jews at the, days of, at the day of Pentecost is now living inside of the Gentiles. That God gives them his spirit. That we don't earn it, that we don't achieve it, that God gives it. Now think about that for a second. God gives us his spirit. The God of the universe, the God who spoke all things into existence, the God who holds all things in his hands, lives inside of you. Wait, what? What? The God who spoke all things into existence is the same God who is living and dwelling within you. That's a radical thought. And yet it's the reality for anyone who's trusted in Christ. That God gives his spirit. Now notice secondly what Peter says, verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them. Like there's no distinction. It doesn't matter, matter whether you're good or bad, whether you're male or female, whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. God makes no distinction He's like, well, I, I, you know, I really love the Jews and, and you know, I'm pretty fond of um, uh, the, the Germans and, and I particularly like Sudanese people. But I got to tell you, uh, you know, uh, Canadians and Guatemalans, like I can't stand them. Like that, that doesn't happen. And God's not saying, you know, I really like the rich people, but I can't stand the middle class. Those guys are the worst. That's not happening. He makes no distinction and then finally this, into verse 9, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Having cleansed their hearts by faith, where God cleanses us. See, we don't have the capacity or the ability to cleanse ourselves. You, you could not wash away the stain of sin that you and I put when we wronged and rejected God. And yet God has that ability and is proactive for and toward us in this. So embracing God's work in salvation. Now notice in verse 10, Peter says this. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? 
Now that, that, that phrase is steeped in an Old Testament understanding. And time and again, that was the terminology, that was the phraseology that God would use regarding the nation of Israel. Why are you putting me to the test? Why do you put me to the test? And specifically, uh, specifically, they would test God, right? They would, they would test God in that they would require something more or different or distinct from what God had given to them. Now, there's all kinds of examples and illustrations of this, but I always think of, uh, remember in Exodus 17, they just come out of Egypt. They just walked through the Red Sea. God had just spared them. And what do they start doing? Like, where's the water? And where's the food? And we want to go back to slavery. And this is really lame. I mean, like instantly complaining. It sound like a number of our children. It's like they're insatiable, right? Just constantly complaining it's like, okay, well, how, how, is, how are they putting God to the test? How, how is this compared to complaining? Here's how. To complain about God's ways, to complain about where God has you, and just begin to think about this in your own personal life, is to imply that God has somehow been wrong in where he's placed you. And to say that God is wrong is to say, ultimately, God, I don't trust your leadership in my life. And in that, we test God. And in that, we say, God, you're not good enough. You're not right enough. You're not sufficient enough. You're not favorable enough. That's kind of a terrifying thought to think of it that way, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what happens when we come at God and say, this isn't good enough. This isn't right enough. We're putting God to the test in that. And in that, we're no different than the nation of Israel or what's going on here in Acts 15. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test here specifically by placing a yoke on the neck of, neck of the disciples that they neither nor, that of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Right, embracing God's work in salvation. Part of what Peter is saying is, you're not willing to trust and follow that God doesn't need them to do that to be saved, and yet He's made it clear, and just let that go. Embracing God's work for salvation. Notice this secondly, verse 11, right? This, this recognition of salvation being the same for all of us. Part of embracing the essentials of salvation is I understand, I recognize that the salvation for all people uh, comes about the same way. Here's what Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I mean, this, this is so incredibly simple and yet also incredibly profound, that all of us come at salvation the same way. Now, there's a couple of, of pretty substantial implications that come uh, from this. Okay, here's the first. Because salvation is the same for all, and because all of us uh, find ourselves saved solely by the grace of God, then therefore, on a personal level, I approach God, I approach salvation, and I have to approach really the whole of humanity with a great dose of humility. Because I didn't do it. God didn't save me. God didn't rescue me. God didn't, um, or, or sorry, I, God, God did save me and rescue me. Let me be really clear about that. I don't, I don't want you thinking that. I, I, I didn't do it on my own. God did it. And so because God did it in my life, then no doubt God has to be the one to do it in your life. Now see, some of us, some of us have uh, maybe what we would call a more checkered or a little bit shadier past uh, than others. And uh, maybe we're reminded of that in certain ways uh, in our life. And then others of us, right, we, we, I'll use quotes here, okay, because, well, I, I'm 
pretty good. According to who? Okay, not according to God. We've all rejected God. None of us are pretty good according to God. But when we consider our past, regardless of where we're coming from, where there should be great humility in that. And, and I, I, have a, I have a cousin. He's about four years younger than me. And he was, hands down, without a doubt, the worst baby ever. Like no comparison. You could come tell me stories for days and I would just laugh and be like, child's play, junior varsity, can't even compare. This was the worst child imaginable. Screamed at everything, totally obstinate, just the worst. In fact, my, one of my older cousins one time was driving. Um, uh, we they lived in Flagstaff in Arizona and she lived in California and they were driving back through the Mojave Desert. It's July, it's like 120 degrees and he's just screaming, screaming, screaming. And one of my cousins asked my aunt, can we just leave him on the side of the road, please. I mean, he was the worst baby. Now, my brother, my middle brother, Joey, was born about, I don't know, 10, 11 months after Jeff was born. And Joey was one of the world's best babies. Like, didn't cry, just snuggly, good-natured kid, all that. And then you move about three years down the road, right? Jeff was just the worst. Joey was just the best. And then they flip-flopped rolls. And Joey, for the next, I don't know, about 20 years, was one of the worst people on the planet. I mean, he was super annoying and just got on everyone's nerves. And he was just a monster to live with. And Jeff, it was like Jeff never sinned anymore. It's like we we would look at him. It's like, I know theologically that you have sin in your life, but I cannot identify it. And and, and we would look and the two of them are like best friends. So it'd be just hilarious because it'd be like, it'd be like literally watching an angel and a demon play with one another. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so the Jeff would just be so patient and kind and Joey would just be so obnoxious and rude and on and on and on. Now you see, here's the point. Those two from a human perspective, come at it from a very different level. But from God's point of view, from God's perspective, they both are wicked fallen sinners who desperately need a savior. And it's only by the grace of God that both of them would be reconciled and redeemed. And so see, loved ones, it doesn't matter what your past is. I think if we, if we come from a little bit shadier background, it's a little bit easier for us to have a little bit more humility and grace. Those of us who grew up and don't have a lot of the big blemishes on our rap sheet tend to struggle with that a little bit more. But you you got to understand, the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice is no less or no more depending on your background. And regardless, regardless, regardless of where we come from, the response should be humility. See, because I don't care how good you think you were, the blood of Jesus poured freely for your sinfulness. Right? Like even for the best of people, it wasn't like, well, here, let's just do the pinprick. We don't need a lot. You're a pretty good person. No, no. The fullness of it had to come out. We think about the essentials of the salvation. We embrace God's work in salvation. We recognize that salvation is the same for all. Then notice this, in verses 13 through 19. Well, let me start in verse 12 here. Peter finishes with what he's saying. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, probably rehashing their first missionary journey and saying, listen, we've seen these same things. We can affirm what Peter is saying. And then starting in verse 13, James begins to speak of. This is most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. 
Uh, Simeon, that's uh, probably the Aramaic for Simon, which is also Peter's name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now check out verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then in verses 16 through 18, he's going to quote from Amos 9. See, part of embracing the essentials of salvation is I embrace that the scriptures are authoritative. James is saying, hey, that thanks, appreciate that, Peter, that, that, that's a great word, which reminds me, Amos tells us this, the word of God tells us this. See, he's appealing to the scriptures. And what James is really telling us is that the essentials of salvation are what God tells us they are. It's not what we want them to be, what we think them to be, what sounds the best, but what God himself would say, this is what salvation is about. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul was writing about of the resurrection of Christ, he writes this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Listen, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now you see what he's doing? He's appealing to the authority of the scriptures in that. He goes on, he says that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. He's like, see, it's it's what God's word is telling us about this. That what God says about salvation is what you and I are to say about salvation. And so if God says that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us, then that's the truth of salvation. If God says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. If God says um, that, uh, that, that while we were still dead in our sins, that Christ died for us, then that's what we say in response to salvation. We go on with all kinds of verses around this. But the essentials of salvation, we embrace the scriptures as authoritative and we let them say what they will about salvation. So here, let me just show you now with that, look at verses 16, 17, and 18. And what Amos, right, one of the prophets says, after this I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, right? The context in Amos 9 is, is, is the destruction of um, the nation of Israel and God's ultimate restoration of it. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Here you go. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then in verse 19, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn from God. The simplicity of salvation, embracing the essentials of Salvation. And then notice in verse 20 and 21, moving away from justification or salvation or that moment of being made right with God to sanctification, to what it looks like to walk with God and growing and looking more and more like Jesus every day. Look at what he says. He says, okay, we're not going to put that restriction on them, but there are some things we want to tell in verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, kind of weird. We'll talk about those in a moment. Verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he's read every Sabbath in the synagogue. See, the simplicity of salvation now moves to a place where we're willing to grow in sanctification. I'm willing to grow in sanctification. I'm willing to look more and more like Jesus. And where salvation is simple, it's easy, it can be known... Uh, sanctification is comprehensive in our life. 
It requires all that we are. And part of what the Jews have mistaken, these guys that are advocating for this circumcision here, what they've confused, they've confused what's required for salvation or what should show up as a part of sanctification. They're making a work, a particular part of what it would be to be saved. And so, so here they, they talk about, James is saying this about, the, he mentions these four things, uh, the, the idols, the sexual morality, what's been strangled and from blood. And understand each of these items are, are rooted in a deep uh, understanding of the Old Testament law, uh, God's prohibition of uh, avoiding worship uh, or, or to avoid uh, worshiping gods from other nations and, and the connectedness that, that exists between all these items. So let's just talk about them quickly and then we'll make application about them. First of all, things polluted by idols. Uh, here, uh, Paul likely has uh, some kind of ritual or practice in view, some kind of pagan form of worship uh, where they would worship a particular idol. And uh, certainly there may be some food offered to idols uh, that would be a part of it or eating that that could be in view here as well. But you remember in Exodus 20, the first of the Ten Commandments, uh, God said what? You shall... Oh, come on, come on, have some confidence. You have no other gods before me. Oh, you got right? Yeah, a couple more words. Like, oh, yeah, we got it. We got it now. Yes. We got it. No problem. We just wanted to see if you knew it, Mike. Yeah, I knew it. I did my research. Okay. All right. No other gods before me. Right? Not polluted by idolatry. And this idea that we would worship or serve some other god in our lives. Uh, secondly, sexual morality. Um, in, in, a, in a specific or narrow view here in the text, it's probably tied to some form of ritual or worship. In fact, we have to remember that day and age, uh, it was totally common uh, in pagan worship where you would go into the temple and worship and there would be temple prostitutes. And uh, so no doubt a very, very different sexual ethic uh, than well, what we would have in the church, though it probably looks more and more like what is uh, more common in our society today. Uh, but on a broader view... Uh, certainly all forms of sexual sin are, are in view here. And then these final two items, strangled and from blood, uh, that just sounds weird and something like you'd find in Leviticus, which is actually true. You would find it in Leviticus uh, amongst a number of other places. But really what, uh, what, what that was tied to was God gave very um, specific instructions around not eating meat that was strangled um, or not eating meat that, was, that still had the blood in it or that was cooked in its own blood. And we, we talk at length about it, but the point being that inherent in that was there was this belief in Jewish thought that the blood was sacred. It was connected to life, that life was found in the blood, the blood, the blood, blood. And, and so to do the violation of the sacredness of life. And so for a Jew, right, for a Jew in this regard, there were great, great implications uh, that would show up in various forms of pagan worship that would be connected to uh, the Gentiles. We'll get to that here in a moment. But let's talk about, okay, what are these four things? How do we begin to apply this? What does this mean in my life? Because I don't know about you, um, I don't strangle anything. Uh, I couldn't tell you what blood is or isn't in uh, whatever there is in, in the meat that you'd go and buy at the grocery store. Uh, being polluted by idols, um, not really an issue. The only thing in our society we could probably even make mention of is sexual morality. That one's pretty easy. Either, I, either that's happening or it's not happening in my life. But I think all of these have some application for us. Here's, here's three ways we'll treat them in mass uh, that I think God is calling us uh, to understand these things. First of all, is that we're faithful, we're faithful to God, that we're faithful in, in how we follow him. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly warned the nation of Israel, do not worship other gods. 
And repeatedly, the nation of Israel ignored that command and worshipped other gods. And things went really poorly for the nation of Israel. I mean, it's kind of common sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's like dealing with a two-year-old. God dealt with a two-year-old for centuries in mass. Don't do that, right? Or, or this is always my favorite. Don't touch that. Right? And it's, they just kind of look at you and be like... <laughs> Maybe, maybe there'd even be like some form of rebellion or disdain. Don't touch that. <laughs> you know, and there's just, like, I'm going to stick it to you. What are you going to do about it? That was, the, that was the nation of Israel for centuries. James 2 talks about faith and works. And see, what James gets at in faith and works is not that our works save us. Okay, so when I talk about being faithful, that doesn't mean that's what saves you. But it's a demonstration that God has changed you and that you're in fact saved. That I want to do the things that God is calling me to do. And that's the point. So now, like as a two-year-old, don't touch that. Oh, I want to please dad. Oh, I won't touch it. Okay. And that's part of it where we're faithful. Right? We're faithful to God. Secondly, I just wrote this down. Righteous in, in life and worship where there's a righteousness and part of the faithfulness is that I want to live righteously, that, that, that I do what God tells me to do, that I allow the truth of God's word to adjust what's going on in my life, that I live in accordance that all that God has called us to be, that I'm righteous. Well, am I going to do that perfectly? No, you won't. You will fail, no doubt. Will we do that in increasing measure? God help us, I hope so. Righteous in life and worship. And then this final one, where I don't really know the best way to say it, so I just wrote this down, but where we're sensitive to others. We're sensitive to others. And certainly these last two, this whole idea of being strangled and from the blood, and then this, this comment in verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. See, it gives us a view into considering others. And you've got to understand for a Jew, for a Jew to eat meat that was offered to an idol or to eat meat that was strangled and didn't have the blood released, that was just a massive, massive violation of what they had known their entire life. But for, for a Gentile, right, for a Gentile, man, you'd never believe the deal I got on this steak. It's a little charred around the edges, but it's a great piece of meat and I paid next to nothing for this. And for them, like, I got a great deal, but for the Jew, it's massively offensive. And so, so, right, it goes both ways. For the Jews, they're saying, you need to be circumcised. For the Gentiles, they're like, you need to lighten up on the whole meat thing. Like, what's the deal? And see, the point being, we've got to be sensitive to one another. We've got to be sensitive to one another. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uh, said this. Actually, flip over. I want you to see this. Romans 14. Just turn to the right. Uh, Romans is just the next book, so you're probably about 20, 25 pages away to get to Romans 14. Uh, Romans 14, starting in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And now he's going to start talking about this specific issue regarding meat. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Be good to be the stronger person so you could actually eat meat. But anyway, verse three, uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so he deals with this meat issue, and then in verse 5 and the following, he's dealing with the, the Sabbath issue. Jump down to verse 13. 
Now Paul begins to give us some instruction on this matter. He says this, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. See, Paul just put his cards on the table. It's like, it's not unclean, right? Nothing can be unclean. Only God makes things clean or unclean. It's not, that's not the issue. But notice what he says after this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Okay, Paul, what are you going to do about it? Well, here's what he's going to do. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, and loved ones, I would just add right there, or any other thing, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. See, it's this sensitivity to others. And part of growing in sanctification is the maturity to go, you know what, I might not have an issue with this. I might not have a problem with this, but I recognize that maybe you do. This might be a difficulty for you. This might be a hardship for you. So I'm not going to partake in this because I care about you and I want to see you be able to thrive and not have some issue with this. Wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. Mike, are you telling me, are you telling me that I have to forfeit some of my freedoms, that I have to forego some of the things that I enjoy because some other problem, some other person might have a problem with it? No, 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 I'm not telling you that. God's telling you that, okay? I don't have any authority to change that in you, but the one who spoke it has absolute authority to change that in you. And it's not my words, it's God's words that call us to be sensitive to this. So yeah, we have to be sensitive to others. Now sometimes, sometimes, right, the follow-up is, okay, well, I didn't get what I wanted. Well, um, so then the conversation will go this way. Well, have you ever thought that maybe I'm the weaker brother? You ever thought that maybe my needs should be considered? You ever thought that maybe you should think about where, where I'm at with this? If anyone ever says that to you, here's the best response, okay? This is the best response, only one I ever use uh, when it comes to this issue. If you can quote the passage about the weaker brother, you're not the weaker brother, all right? Okay? If you can quote it, you're not that person. And then if you don't know about it, then that's probably why you're the weaker brother. But this idea of it's about me, no, no, it's about us, and it's about being sensitive to one another and making provision for all of us, willing to grow in sanctification. Here's the final thing. Most of the rest of the text is really a rehash of what we've read. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And starting verse 23, they write this letter basically talking about, listen, guys have come in that have unsettled your mind. We're sending these guys to you. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then just what we had just talked about, that you abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from the blood, uh, from what had been strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. End of issue and discussion. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, check this out, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And part of the simplicity of the gospel is it celebrates God's provision. Let me just talk about those two words, rejoice and encouragement, real quick, and then we're done. 
Right? They rejoiced. They rejoiced probably on a number of levels. They rejoiced that, that no extra requirements were placed for salvation. Probably the guys especially, but everyone rejoicing in that. But they rejoiced that there was a great unity amongst the church, that they could come to this decision. Not only were they not divided, but they were more unified than before. And then this encouragement that came, right, really the motivation for their rejoicing, and they're encouraged that the body would respond this way. They're celebrating God's provision. They're celebrating how God has moved and worked in this manner. God help us. God help us that we too would celebrate in God's provision. And as we live in the simplicity of the gospel, as we allow the profound nature and implication of what God has done for us, as we allow that to drive our lives to a place where our hearts are transformed by God's great work. And I recognize what God has done. I recognize his grace, the massive implications in that. And because of that, right, we live in humility. We're willing to move and to work in sanctification and an increasing love for Jesus and those around us because our hearts are changed in that way. That we don't simply modify our behavior, but it's, it's completely and radically changed because our heart is changed. God help us, God help us that we would embrace the simplicity of the gospel, that we would believe, that we would willingly follow, and that we would be driven by God's grace in all these matters, and that the simplicity of the gospel would drive all, all, all uh, that we are and that we do. Let's pray.